Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. I'm here to help you find the clues that will lead you to your calling. Today's guest found his calling after backpacking around Asia. Benny Lauria had just sold a company. He had just gotten married. He feared that if he spent a year traveling, he'd run out of money and he'd run out of momentum, and he worried it would be career suicide. But his wife, Christine, pushed him to seize the day. They sold everything, gave up their apartment in the mission, and hopped on a one-way flight across the Pacific, planning to come back in a year. Throughout his travels, Vinny kept doing what he does best. He was meeting with entrepreneurs everywhere he went, Korea, Japan, China, Indonesia, India, you name it, all over Asia. Along the way, he stumbled across a unique opportunity. He noticed there was a gap in funding for entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. All the venture capital firms were risk-averse and didn't invest with a Silicon Valley mindset. Meanwhile, there was an explosion of early-stage startups hungry for funding. So, with no investment experience to speak of, Vinny partnered up with some friends and started a venture capital firm. Golden Gate Ventures is an early-stage VC firm in Southeast Asia. They've invested $60 million in over 30 companies in seven countries, including TradeGecko and RedMart. He and Christine now live in Singapore with their two children. They never did move back to San Francisco. And Vinny is a really close friend of mine. A year after I moved to California, I was pretty lost. I didn't like living in San Jose, and I didn't like the direction my startup was going in. And I couldn't bear to just give up and move back to Nebraska. Meanwhile, San Francisco was just up the road. I just only had the courage to make the move. And right around that time, I met Vinny, and I spent a lot of time with him and his now wife, Christine, and they were both really adventurous and had a bold perspective on living life. And I did move up to San Francisco and fulfilled a lifelong dream of finally living in a big, bustling city. And Vinny always offered inspiration when I needed it. You'll see he's not afraid to do things that many people consider risky. He values adventure, and he's a big advocate of putting yourself in a situation where you just have no choice but to succeed. As Vinny likes to say, when you jump, the net appears. Listen to this episode for inspiration on making big changes in your life. Vinny will share his story of quitting a secure job at IBM and moving across the country with no plan. We'll talk about how he used to live and work with as many as 12 people in a three-bedroom apartment. He'll share his unique methods for managing the roughly 1,000 new people that he meets every year and how best to connect with them. Overall, you'll hear how a guy from Long Island ended up founding a VC firm in Singapore. Here's Vinny Lard. When you're billing your clients, the last thing you want to waste your time and mental energy on is creating invoices. FreshBooks customers get paid an average of five days faster. Get your free 30-day trial at academy.net slash FreshBooks. I'm here with uh, Vinny Lauria of Golden Gate Ventures, and I think the, um, the investment world can be a little bit mysterious sometimes. So can you kind of describe like what Golden Gate Ventures is? Uh, pretty simple. Uh, venture capital firm. We're focused in Southeast Asia. Uh, we're early stage. So Series A deals, companies raising a few hundred thousand up to a few million. Okay. So basically your job is is to hang out in Asia and yeah, I mean, travel can, around. 
yeah, so I can boil it down to, yeah, the, the day-to-day is, is pretty awesome where I get just to meet entrepreneurs, uh, ones we invested in, ones that we haven't. And basically, you know, I'd say I split my time between looking for new companies um, and it's less looking and it's just more meeting with lots of companies and then helping the portfolio. And the questions you could get range in everything. Like, you know, somebody has to hire, fire somebody for the first time. I remember one team took out all the founders for like drinks the first time they had to fire somebody because, you know, your young kids, that's kind of difficult going through and what to expect afterwards. Um, to, you know, negotiating acquisitions offers in like hundreds of millions of dollars and trying to help companies with, you know, how to put your best foot forward in terms of strategy and how to, you know, really knock into their head that, their valuation is this kind of magic pixie dust and there's many different ways to make you sound if we're an investor we're trying to make the company sound higher if we're you know looking to invest we're usually trying to make the company sound lower uh but tend to be pretty entrepreneurial friendly yeah and uh so what um oh gosh i I lost my train of thought already um, it, 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 I, I'm so like outside of that world that I hardly understand what's going on most of the time. So you guys have been around for, what is it like four years or so? Am I that uh, right? About four years. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so inside the world that, um, I totally forget what it's like to be looking oh, at. Oh yeah. You're like, outside. it's simple as a venture capital firm, which I mean, even I've like worked for venture capital VC backed companies and stuff. And so I have some sense of, of what's what's go what goes on with them but uh yeah i think so you were saying like hundred thousand dollar investments or so usually a company that kind of has some traction already they're in southeast asia and uh, like where are they getting their funding earlier on for like from angels and and seed from from angels so you know that's i mean i've been out here almost six years and the reason why was when I, first, I was actually backpacking out here in 2010. Wait, have we mentioned yeah. that you're in Singapore, by the way? <laughs> no. no so I'm in Singapore. I'm on the equator. Uh, you might be able to see by the video because it's very hot in here. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I'm in Singapore. Been out here since uh, 2010. Used to live in San Francisco with uh, some very fortunate friends, including the one I'm speaking to right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, fun. <laughs> Uh, but literally just ended up here by taking a little break, taking some time. I had just gotten married. So my wife, Christine and I started backpacking with this kind of lofty goal of let's travel the globe. Let's take a year, explore Latin America, Europe. We, we had a dream of living in, uh, cause we spent our honeymoon in Buenos Aires. So we wanted to go back there and live in Buenos Aires. Um, and so and live in Italy and live in all these places. And basically when we set off, we were, we literally just went west from San Francisco. So that first stop was Korea, which was awesome. You know, the first, the only thing I knew was Korean barbecue. And I was like, oh, that's all Korean food. And then you just open to this whole new world of culture and flavor and experience. And then we went west from Korea to China. And then when you're, for my, I mean, 2010 wasn't that long ago, but that was my first time in China. As an American, you kind of have this idea of socialism, communism, but it's really capitalism 2.0. And so it was in China that, to me, Europe, the U.S., Latin America all felt the same uh, in terms of then just kind of, you know, Western European uh, languages and food and styles and culture um, that they all just kind of became one all of a sudden. So that was what really turned my world upside down, made me say like, wow, there's so much different things here I want to explore. So we ended up spending three months in China we never met, made it anywhere to Europe or Latin America because after China, we said, let's just explore the rest of Asia. And we would try to spend a month per country. And then kind of fast forward to how I ended up in Southeast Asia was um, 
So just being a, a, a geek by nature, wanting to know, hey, what's happening in a startup scene? That was my world. So I wasn't on the investor side before, so I didn't speak that language. Um, but I wanted to have drinks with locals or have a dinner with locals. So we did that two different ways. Uh, couch surfing, and I almost kind of used it as not even a crash on people's couches, but just to say, um, does anybody like your profile seems cool? Do you want to grab drinks? Uh, and that was actually the search filter I would search was like people that talk, had drinks as like their hobbies or whatever. Yeah, that's, um, a, well, that's an option on couch surfing too. You can say, well, I don't have a couch yeah. available, but I'm up for coffee or drinks too. Coffee, yeah. Um, and so, so we met a ton of people that way, and that was amazing. So that was one way we met locals, which to me was kind of the, we had the best experiences in these small little towns and cities that you would never go to that there's nothing touristy there, but because we met some really great people and there's people I'm friends with now on Facebook and I run into and while I'm traveling around. Um, and then the second way was I would look up the startup scene, which was like co-working spaces, uh, event lists, and just sometimes blast a group. Uh, my partner here, uh, Gungate, I met because he was a popular blogger uh, and had a Twitter account. And I reached out to him and then he responded over email. Um, so that was my way of, again, just connecting with locals with no intention of doing anything out here. But then I was pretty fortunate getting a cross-section of like what's happening in China, India, Southeast Asia. And so going back to your question of, yeah, like where are people getting money? Because I kind of just jumped straight into that was... Um, Basically, in China in 2010, there was tons of activity, huge technology firms, the equivalents of the Googles, you know, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Um, in India, there was tons of decently funded startups. VC firms from the U.S. like Sequoia were there. Um, but in Southeast Asia, there was nobody. And there was very, very few angel investors. Um, and so that was kind of the aha light bulb moment for me was like, oh, I can see the same sort of development. That's the one thing about being in Asia. So I grew up in New York where I always thought New York was fast paced. And New York has a lot of construction and it's always being overdone. But no matter where you are in Asia, China probably is number one, but no matter where you are, the, the world is just always changing around you. Buildings are going up. You see construction cranes in every direction. New subway lines come online every year. Um, so that was kind of like a universal constant I saw around the region. Um, everybody has a smartphone these days because even a few years ago, because you, know, you can get them for like $80 in Indonesia it was Blackberry at the time that was really popular. But I remember being in a small little town on the far corner of Java and, uh, we were taking a ferry somewhere else. Um, and we're at a mall at a coffee shop and I, ch I would check in on Foursquare so that I would know places that I liked. And I was like, Oh, this is a cool little coffee shop. If I'm ever back through this town check in on Foursquare and then it's like you have, there's four other people checked in around you uh, within this mall. Um, and that was just another kind of enlightening moment of like the rate that people are adopting the tech and the social aspect of it, um, it, it that, that's universal around the world. So it kind of saw huge development, same sort of mobile engagement, if not higher mobile engagement here because people don't have a desktop computer, a laptop, uh, or a, a majority of people don't. Um, but there was no investors, no angel investors. There was very few at the time, definitely no VC. And so then that was just like, oh, I wonder if I can be that plug. That That's the problem and opportunity. Like mm -hmm. I can see where the next few years are going. There just needs to be somebody to fill in the money. Uh, I wonder if I can be one cog in that wheel. Yeah. So you, you traveled around and you saw all that development happening in Asia and then at the same time, just because I think that you generally like to meet people 
and you were traveling around and meeting people and you've also ha- are very interested in entrepreneurship. We can go back to like, you know, some of, some of the stuff that you did back in Silicon Valley. Um, and then you, you're, you're having like events. Didn't you have like a super happy dev house, uh, or two did yeah. you throw one? So that means, yeah, I did. So, the, um, so when, again, I'm, I'm so rewind 2010 to 2011 backpacking, literally just trying to unplug. Um, but then I came through Singapore. I met my now partner, but I didn't know, you know, we were just dating at first. I didn't know we were going to be partners. Met him at a coffee shop. He ended up inviting me back to Singapore to mentor for the Founders Institute. And so I ended up coming back a second time. And then I think he invited me a third time. And so with each trip I was coming back, I was like, Singapore feels like a pretty hot scene. That's about it. Sorry. Singapore didn't feel like a hot scene, but it felt like it was about to be a hot scene. Uh, and then a friend I met here who is Singaporean, who now lives in San Francisco, his goal was always to get to the Valley. Uh, so it's kind of funny. We swapped. Um, we just started talking about how San Francisco is different than Singapore. And I threw out, I was like, oh, there's this one event, Super Happy Dev House, where it's like just a party. Like, you know, people are hacking away, but it's like social. It really started off in somebody's house. And he had heard about it. And he's like, yeah, that sounds so cool. Um, and then it just came from us at a cafe being like, oh, we should do this in Singapore. And so then emailed the David Weekly and the guys behind Super Happy Dev House and said, hey, can I do this in Singapore? And they were like, sure, go ahead. Um, and so we did. And so that was one event that uh, I think we had like 160 people come out. So it was huge. We did it over a weekend in a coffee shop. Uh, I forget all this, but like we went through tons of beer, tons of coffee. People hacked me. One of the companies that started at that super happy dev or one of the projects, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, I ended up investing in their company like two years later. Um, so it kind of had uh, some magical components of it as well. But that was something that I think I was very fortunate with the timing of doing an event like that. We had people flying into Singapore from Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia. So from like neighboring countries, it, it was like it was just the right event at the right time. Um, and that then plugged me into so many more people. And is one of the there was many nails in the coffin to have me attracted to Southeast Asia, and that was one of them. Yeah, and it, it, like you were there at the right time, and then you also got to become a, a catalyst. And uh, as far as uh, getting some encouraging some entrepreneurship to go to go on there, but then also you became uh, the first venture capital fund there, or. Uh, not the first, but I would the first Silicon Valley bent Type. venture capital okay. fund. Uh, and what I what to me what that means is has a high appetite for risk. There were investors here, but they were kind of conservative. There were some that were attached to like family conglomerates and things of that nature. And so maybe they would invest and take sixty percent of the company, and that's not like a Silicon Valley mindset. Um, so I would say we were the, we were definitely I would be comfortable to say we were the first Silicon Valley minded VC firm. Yeah, and I think that you were well equipped to seize this opportunity in part because of some of the work that you were doing in Silicon Valley. Like you were you were organizing the SF, or didn't you start the SF New Tech Meetup? Uh, close the Silicon Valley New Tech Meetup. Uh, so there's right, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, SF one as well. It was started by Miles. Um, yeah, and that I owe credit to Scott, the CEO of Meetup.com, because I used to go. I used to live in New York. And I would go to the New York New Tech Meetup uh, with ideas. Uh, I was at IBM. I knew I wanted to quit IBM. So what's going on in the startup scene in New York? Um, but always had the hunkering 
like many people to be in San Francisco. You know, when the dot-com boom was happening, um, I was basically in high school and college, so it wasn't on the East Coast. Um, so never got to participate in it, but always followed it really closely. And so in like early 2004, um, could kind of feel things starting to pick up again. I mean, Facebook was probably just in a, like a handful of colleges at that time. Um, but uh, so that's why I started going to the New York New Tech Meetup. And then I decided, you know what, I want to make the jump. And can definitely talk a little bit about that on a side story, but then moved from New York to San Francisco. And then again, just like I asked David Weekly, can I do, like, this is an awesome event. Can I do this? I asked Scott, like, hey, this is, that was an awesome event. Can I do a Silicon Valley version of it? And he's like, yeah, sure. And he, he did me a solid. He's like, you know what, I'll introduce you to one of our VC firms there and they can be a host once it gets big enough. Uh, so the first event was in a coffee shop and it was just five people. Uh, and so as somebody hosting a meetup where I came from New York, where it was like a hundred plus people, you know, five people, it was a little anxious and stressful being like, Oh my God, this is not big enough. And how are people going to take it? But that, uh, that first event was, it was cool. It was fun. It was basically just people generally interested. And again, I was fortunate enough in timing to be kind of ahead of the curve. There weren't, you know, there weren't millions of meetups on Python, JS, and all these other things. It was like there was no other meetup. So it was the opportunity to kind of plug in at the right time as things started picking up again. Um, so uh, that started growing pretty quickly. I think you, we probably met around the early time. When did we first meet? When did you move um, out to the Valley? I moved out sometime in like August, around August 26, 2005. And uh, okay. I believe that you and I met at a super happy dev house in like February 2006 or something um, at, yeah. at David Weekly's house. And there were people from like uh, Neil Kumar, who became yeah. director of engineering at Yelp or something like VP of engineering at Yelp. And and um, yeah, a few people were there. It was really I met a lot of great people that, that day. So that's where we met. Yeah. Yeah. That, again, why it was an awesome event. Yeah, we're. We met there. We're good friends there. There's so many stories like that um, at these super happy dev house events. Um, so yeah, so the meetup took off in a fashion that was really, really small. Scott, help me out. So once we, I think by month three or month four, we got big enough that we were like 20 plus people. We did our first event at DLA. Um, I remember it was our first or second event. Um, the CEO of Mebo, Sequoia backed company. This might have been before he was uh, backed by Sequoia, which had like a uh, no, sorry, it wasn't Mebo, different company. They presented it well. <laughs> CEO of IMView, Eric Reese, where everybody oh. knows Eric Reese because <laughs> yeah, right. uh, presented and because uh, he had IMView. And it was basically, and I knew about him from his previous startup, probably through David Weekly. I think they worked together. And so I knew that he was like really well respected, but he was out there presenting and I would say he, it wasn't going over so well for the crowd. And I think it was because his software was used basically by teenagers. And it was kind of like chat rooms with 3D avatars. And I think for the audience, it, it, it either didn't resonate with them in terms of socially, why would people use this? Or like, how is this a startup that would be get funded? But I, so I remember afterwards, because of like his feel in the room, knowing the respect he should have gotten and didn't see that, I went up and I gave like a little two-minute spiel on like why I thought what he was doing was pretty amazing. Um, and that little thing turned in, that was felt good or whatever. And so I ended up making that a part of my 
every time a company presented, we'd have four a night. I would always afterwards give a little one minute talk about what really stood out to me. And that became kind of a little unique quality of our meetup that was very different than the others. And people would always come up to me and tell me that they loved it. So it was just to keep it positive. Um, but it all came from Eric Reese and just having a disconnect from yeah, yeah. people not. I think you have kind of a talent or an inclination towards almost like collecting people. Like you, you run these uh, events, these meetups and, and, and you build up a lot of human capital that way. You did the same way, the same thing when you were doing all the traveling. And I remember meeting you in Silicon Valley and you had like a really interesting way of organizing all of your contacts. Um, do you still, I do, still that? do to this day? Okay. I still do to this day. Are, are, you, are you willing full. to share? Yeah, hundred percent. I've, uh, so, so I started this actually, I probably started when I was in New York at the New York new tech meetup where I would be meeting so many people. And I was like, I want to remember who they are and you know, a little nugget of how I can remember them. So I started in New York with the New York tech meetup. When I moved out to San Francisco, technically Palo Alto, I started doing the same thing. Every time I met somebody, I'd take their business card, I would type their name, their email, how we met, and one little nugget, and a date we met, and a nugget of information to remember. Uh, and so now this has continued for uh, like 12 years. And so I've created new spreadsheets, and now I'm on Google Docs instead of Excel. Um, but I still use it. Now I have a plugin with like Zapier and like all these different sort of plugins, and I can do all these different things, MailChimp and things with it. Um, but it's been, so I, I don't know if I'd recommend that, but it's been super helpful to me for a few reasons. Um, so now in my world, and so this is where I feel really fortunate being the, the VC venture capital business to me is a relationship business. It's not that I have a finance background or understand anything about money. It's just at the end of the day, we're helping our companies by making introductions to them. So on leveraging your network, which only is maturing and growing over time, is super important. So this spreadsheet has actually been really, really valuable. And what ends up happening is I don't even remember somebody's name um, or I don't remember because uh, I because I meet a lot of people and I remember, oh, I met them at this dinner in this city around this month. And so I can actually search my spreadsheet and find them uh, and then email them. And maybe that sounds a little cheesy, but you know, I've pr I, I probably meet over a thousand contacts a year. So maybe not that many, but definitely in the high hundreds that um, need a way to kind of just maintain and organize and be able to recall and remember. And it's really funny when I look back on somebody um, like, hey, how did I meet David Kidmanakadu before the end of the call? David Kidmanakadu, like what little notes that I write about them? So, I mean, I'm, it's funny to me that you haven't found an app that works for you on this. Have you no, tried? No, I've tried. I've tried so many apps. All the apps make it so like the so uh, like insightly, contextually. I've uh, paid for them, use them. They're all just so heavy and slow, and they all fell on the search. At the end of the day, the biggest thing is I need to say like, oh, I met this person at uh, Geeks on a Plane, uh, and search that, and then get a result set. They all fell on that search. They only have search built in on like first name or last name. They don't have it on any additional notes or tags or locations and things like that. So they all fell on the ability to retrieve a, a contact the way I want to retrieve it. Mm -hmm. And you like they to, may have some elements of search, but nothing good. And you used to throw really great parties in uh, in, in Silicon Valley, and uh, I remember there being a field in on your spreadsheet. I think that helped you with that. So 
I still have a field, which is the party flag, which I say, yes, this is a person I want to invite to parties, which we still do today. So like we just threw a huge F1 part for Formula One out here. We had like 200 people. We had yachts over the weekend. We had a pen, uh, presidential suite overlooking the race. And the way people get selected for that is like, yeah, have they been marked on the party flag? So when we, if you meet me randomly in this world, try to stand out and be interesting so I can give you a check on the party flag to say, yeah, what's, to our party. people probably wondering what kind of like, what's the criteria for deciding whether you want to invite somebody to a party or not? It's a, it's, it's a scale. Cause like, I, I want like important, there's on one side, there's important people, but somebody could be a little too stuffy and important. So then they don't kind of make the party click. And then somebody could be, completely young junior no sort of experience but fuck they tell an interesting story or they just tend to be the life of a party and definitely want them um so it's it's an odd little scale um but it's something i still use Uh, i love that you remembered all the stuff because i think i'm probably pretty unique and now i've kind of incorporated it into the business and you know we have other contacts that are getting kind of flagged and other people that are meeting people with this um and i've even thought about building our own software since now we're using it as a company um but so far the spreadsheet is gotten 80 percent of the work done if you got but any sense back, of, i was gonna say if you yeah, got any it, sense of whether the uh the party flag has any um it, it does any anything to predict whether or not somebody is good to invest in or or not no no definitely not at all uh we've invested in people that i would say don't wouldn't be good at the with the party flag and then there's people that the party flag and i'm like would not invest in them might even uh, be an inverse so. correlation I think zero, no correlation. Um, uh, but as I say, going back to the party thing, so, you know, the whole meetup, the whole, like, when I look back on my life, I realized, like, when I was younger, I was much more introverted, like, especially in high school, like, I had closer groups of friends, didn't really socialize with lots of other different types of groups. And it was probably college where I went through that transformation, right? Probably for anybody that does go through that change is probably is in college where you're really just open to a lot of new people and experiences. And, um, so like I would say halfway through college, that's where then started throwing just tons of house parties. And so when I look back, I kind of see like, Oh, this kind of idea of bringing people together, uh, and throwing parties like started back in college and we would just do these massive house parties that people would know about. And then when I look at Paul, Paul Bergel, who David, you know, really well is, helped me uh start golden gates worked with me in a bunch of different companies um he's also a person like that and he if i'm here paul is over here in terms of just bringing people together much higher is is the the signal that you just made yeah yeah sorry i'm on video yeah (laughs) paul is on a paul's on another level but all of it's in his mind he doesn't have a spreadsheet i'm always like how do you do that without like he just knows and he can recall anything and people and he meets people on every corner of the earth. Um, so it's kind of funny that we connected up. And so I've definitely learned a lot from, I think I've also had just a lot of that intuitively inside of me f- for some reason. Um, but uh, yeah, that party gene or just bringing people together has been uh, around since college. So you, you did a bunch of traveling, you saw the opportunity, you had built up a lot of human capital, you uh, have the skill and the inclination to do the relationship part of of a business like this. And then you met this person who uh, would make a good business partner. How did you then start a VC? It just, it, it just seems like I would have no idea how to begin. 
Uh, and neither did I. You know, I, every year of my life, I, no matter what I've ever done, I always look back and just randomly, I'm just like, wow, one year ago, I thought I knew everything and I can see how much I've learned in one year. And so like, that's true right now. If I look back a year ago, I'm like, wow, there's so much I didn't know one year ago. And it kind of feels like I know everything I need to know now. Um, so how did I start it? I would just say, uh, uh, ignorant optimism. Um, so you're kind of, and I think that's every entrepreneur journey in the world. You're optimistic about what the future holds and you're ignorant about all the stuff you don't need to know. Because in reality, I think if you weren't ignorant, you would never start it. If I knew all the problems and all the headaches and the red tape and delays and issues we'd run into, I don't think I would have started. I would have been like, wow, that's overwhelming. Um, there's no way I can do that or I don't want to put myself through that. So I, that's, so going into VC, I think is for any entrepreneur, you know, even if you're going to start a tuxedo business and you you know, you you don't know anything about it, um, but you, that's what you want to do. I think it's kind of going into it with an optimism and a little bit of, uh, ignorance. Um, and then it's just learning as you go along. And so, you know, cutting through that, like, would I have been able to start a new VC firm in Silicon Valley? No. It was too competitive. You know, there's too many established platforms. So it, I was able to go at it ignorantly yet optimistic in an environment where there wasn't a lot of competition, in an environment where the timing was right, in an environment where it was needed. Um, so this is the classic entrepreneur problem is, uh, you know, market timing. Are you too early or too late? So if I was in a saturated market, if I was in China, I, we, I wouldn't be on a successful platform right now, but I was in the right place. I was very fortunate with timing, right place at the right time. We're going to take a quick break. As a solopreneur, I want maximum impact with minimum effort. Any chance that I get to clone myself, I take it. That's why I love Active Campaign. With Active Campaign, I can build incredibly sophisticated email marketing campaigns that run themselves. I can have a big impact on my email subscribers. I can make sales. And meanwhile, I'm free to build more cool things. It's really like having a clone. With ActiveCampaign, I can build automations that do just about anything. It's just like running a program, but ActiveCampaign's drag and drop editor makes it easy. You can see visually exactly how your campaign works. The best part is Active Campaign is actually cheaper than my old ESP. I really wish I would have started with them. So try out Active Campaign for free for 14 days. Go to cadavy.net slash AC for your free trial. That's cadavy.net slash AC to claim your 14-day free trial. I'm curious, when you and and uh, and Christine went on your trip, did you have any visions about like what you thought you would do when you were done? Uh, no, no vision. So yeah, let me go into that. So I literally, up until a few months into the trip, really thought it was we're going around the world and go back to San Francisco and start another company in San Francisco. When Lafora was acquired in 2010, um, I remember me and Christine had got married in 2009. We had been talking about doing a big trip. I even printed out a huge map on the wall that I was coloring in, sort of like the community chest and like local towns do to say, like, this is how much we have saving and here's a goal so we can start traveling. So we always had this kind of around the time we were getting married, like at some point in the future, we need to take a huge worldwide trip. 
So that was the thought. The acquisition happened. Um, and then it was like, okay, this is the opportunity to do it. I didn't want to leave right after LaForest acquired because I was figuring there was an opportunity cost I was missing out. I was like, this is momentum I could ride to do something next because it's a good story. And if I unplug from Silicon Valley, I'm going to be way behind when I come back one year later. So that was the feeling I had. And if uh, for anybody that knows Christine, which you do incredibly well, she was the irrational rash, like, we have to do this now or we're never going to do it. And like, you know, in her words, like, we like ripping off a Band-Aid. And so literally within one month of the company getting acquired, we had uh, packed up all, all of our stuff. And I think we, we technically left maybe two months after. Um, but it was like a very quick, to me, rash decision um, in terms of let's sell all our stuff. We did a put up on Craigslist yard sale. So there was nothing holding us back. Um, let's end our lease, uh, kind of say our goodbyes. I'll talk about the going away party in a second. Um, and so what I wanted to do next was just basically take a year off, come back to San Francisco. Um, but obviously, yeah, that changed. And so um, I feel incredibly fortunate to be to travel where we traveled at the time when we were traveling. Yeah, and it's funny because you had this fear of like, like it would be like career suicide in a way of, of leaving yeah. Silicon Valley, right? And now, do you I ever really think did. about what how things would have turned out? Or no, I I think I'm on a uh, I'm happy with the success of Golden Gate Ventures today. So I never had a goal of being. I I think in the back, any entrepreneur in the back of your head, you're always like, oh wow, the other side being the investor is pretty cool. They seem like cool some. 80% of VCs actually are not, uh, I don't think too highly of, but there's 20% that I do. Um, but as an entrepreneur, you're kind of like, oh, that would be kind of cool when I'm older, someplace later. So I never had the goal, immediate short-term goal of being a VC. Um, so yeah, if I think where life would be, I think it would be very different. I definitely would not be on a, in the VC space in the Valley. Um, I, I don't know where I would be. I just think it would be very different. I feel super happy and fortunate for what I'm doing. Like I going back to all of my experiences and, you know, going from like more of a geeky computer engineer to then more product person to now more investor person, an evolution of kind of my skills and talent. I'm really happy here. I like this. Um, but I can't imagine what it would have been like uh, on the other side. Yeah. So if you, I had stayed. you kind of felt like maybe it was career suicide. What were some of the other fears that you, what do you think was holding holding you back from making the leap then besides the uh, career suicide look, um, or in addition to it? It's also scary. I would say it's also a little bit scary, like traveling to places, don't know, traveling for a year, how much it's going to cost us, you know, where are we going to burn through all of our savings? You know, we're 30 years old. We just got married. Should we be saving for a house uh, and a family or should we be blowing it all, you know, experiencing life? So that that was also uh, kind of an anxiety that was rolling around. Fortunately, for, you know, for me, I have an awesome wife who's probably more extreme to me than me in terms of, you know, fuck it, let's just enjoy things. I, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you didn't really have a plan, and it, it seems like it worked out fine. Now, the other day, I came across your. I had it in my notes. I don't know where I got it from, but your resignation letter to IBM. 
um, <laughs> I read that, and uh, it that must have been two thousand five or two thousand four or something. And in it, two thousand four. Yeah. In it, you're saying, yeah, I'm I'm uh, leaving IBM. I'm going to Silicon Valley because I've got a great opportunity in the social media space there. I think social media is going to really be connecting people in the future. And by the way, um, in your retrospective, you're saying actually there was no opportunity. I was, I was just moving. Yeah. So, uh, that, this is kind of funny. Um, so when I like to, you know, if you look at my life from the outside, you're just like, Oh, Vinny made these jumps and he was, uh, comfortable and confident in that. But this is really good story of no, I wasn't. So I worked at IBM for about three and a half years. Uh, I knew I kind of reached my peak there when I spent uh, a part of a year working in an internship program, a research lab in North Carolina. I was like, wow, this is awesome. This reminds me of startups again, because I had worked as the web developer for startups in high school and college. And so I was like, I want to get back into that. So that encouraged me to say I want to leave IBM. And then once that happened, I didn't have the gumption to say, I want to leave and just start my own company. My view is I need to leave and join a startup. So then I started applying everywhere. LinkedIn, which was really small at the time, like a small team, not big like so it you was. You mentioned LinkedIn uh, in, your, uh, yeah. in your resignation letter, and it was like, oh, it, must have, it must have just started then. Yeah. Um, and so I was applying at places like these, and two companies had flown me across the country to the West Coast, uh, LinkedIn being one of them, to say, uh, hey, look, let's do a you know, deeper interview. And so basically I had, I was at IBM, I had these companies that showed more than one level, but kind of a second level of interest to me. And then all of a sudden I had this thing at IBM where I was a consultant for them and they could place me anywhere around the country. Normally it was always in New York City. This time they wanted me to go to Ohio and I didn't want to go to Ohio. And they always told us, you know, if you don't want to do a project, you can just tell your manager no. So that's what I did. And then all of a sudden I realized I have like four different levels of managers and everybody kept pushing on me that I had to go. So it came to a position of, I don't know what I have next. But um, knowing I want to leave and I don't want to get placed on this new engagement, I should just quit now so that in one scenario, I get a job and I have a little bit break and I can take some time off and enjoy things. And in the worst case scenario, um, I don't get the job offers, but now my back is against the wall and I'm forced to do something. And so now the resignation letter comes in. So basically, I, I made that decision. All right, I'm going to resign. One or two scenarios that happen. But from talking to my basically direct managers, my peers, none of them could kind of understand. Like for my closest friends, I would kind of say like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing next. But I realized once I got a little bit outside of that circle in IBM, nobody could understand why you would leave IBM without knowing what you're doing next. So I had to basically lie to my managers, to the people that I, while I was resigning and say I had another offer uh, in order for me to kind of... Uh, Exit gracefully, if that makes sense. Uh, but that, so I was scared shitless when that was happening. I didn't know the outcome. Put in my resignation letter. It was late 2004. Um, within two weeks of resigning, I got basically, you know, we're, we're not hiring you letters from the companies I was meeting with. And so I was like, okay, this is now plan B. My back is against the wall. Um, so I kind of forced my hand by putting myself in that situation. And I was like, all right, now I have to. My dream is to be out in San Francisco. So just like we left San Francisco, packed everything up in less than a month in New York, 
uh, moved out to San Francisco, said, I don't have a lot of savings. So I was living in a hostel for almost two months with like a shared bathroom down the hall, which I hadn't had since like my freshman year of college. Uh, and it was at that time that I reconnected with Paul, Paul Brigill. So I'd met him. I can even go into that backstory in Chicago as a Metro user of his, uh, the startup I joined um, a few months prior. He had just moved to Palo Alto. They were looking to raise money. I just moved to San Francisco. We reconnected. Basically, uh, I'm living in a hostel, so I needed housing. Um, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I even posted ads on Craigslist, almost like a dating ad, like, hey, I want to start a company. I don't know what it is, but I'm looking for other like-minded people. I met like now superstars of the Valley, like Jared Koff, who started a whole bunch of companies since then, and has like, worked with Max Levchin. I met him via Craigslist, an ad like that. And he <laughs> reached out and like, hey, why don't we meet for coffee and talk? This is 2004, so it wasn't like too hot of a scene at the time. It was just starting to pick back up. Um, and so then I met Paul, uh, reconnected with Paul. And so he fulfilled like, basically there was six guys living in a three bedroom house. And so I could sleep on the floor in one of the bedrooms. So that would be better than being in a hostel. Um, could get to join a pretty early startup uh, and get just be considered then part of the founding team. And so I ended up uh, joining Metro um, again with the idea, just went out there not knowing what was going to happen, wanting to start my own thing, willing to join something else. Um, fast forward, you know, a year and a half later, uh, we ended up shutting down Metro, raised a little money, but through a lot of awesome parties, met a lot of awesome people, started another company after that. Um, but yeah, so my leaving IBM was basically, I forced my hand. So that's a huge, I've had a few life lessons. I would say the three biggest life lessons have been when I left IBM, which was really scary to leave. And I'm here in Asia and every, you know, person that I meet, especially in Singapore is like, well, uh, you know, in America, that's kind of normal, uh, but our parents wouldn't allow us to do it here. And I was like, that, that's true for American parents. Like, I remember the, the first person I ever told when I wanted to leave IBM was my parents. I remember sitting down at my parents' house and my mom thought it was crazy and was like screaming at me and like, why would you leave this? It's such a great company because for their generation, IBM was like the job you were at for the rest of your life. Um, my dad was a little bit more understanding because he runs his own business, kind of a, a glazier installation company. Um, so he understood it, but I remember fighting with my mom and she thought it was crazy. Uh, and Paul Brigo was actually influential in me leaving IBM because I had met him in Chicago. So I was there for a wedding as a user of Metro. We met up for, so this is before I joined, we met up for beers and basically it was supposed to be like a hour kind of coffee. We ended up drinking all afternoon. And by the time I left, he had me convinced to leave IBM and moved down to Brazil and lived there for six months. Um, so <laughs> Paul also had a huge influence in, uh, in that inspiration. And so I try to be like that now when I meet young people, just to be inspiring to say, you know, it, there is a different world than what we feel is we're taught and what is normal, and you just have to jump. Um, so the life lesson was one, leaving IBM, and then everything ended up being okay. And so somebody said a quote to me that's always stood out, which is just jump and the net will appear. I'm a big believer of that. If you just jump in life, you will land safely and probably bigger opportunity will happen. Uh, the second life lesson was when I uh, we had to shut down Metro. And so to go back to our investors and say, hey, we're shutting this down. It's not working out. Some of our investors reinvested in our third company. So that life lesson was basically when people are investing and now I try to imbibe that this is a, a kind of light, long, long-term proposition and you're investing in people, not just ideas. And sometimes the ideas don't work out, but the people still show possibility. That was the second. 
And then a third life lesson comes back to my leaving IBM. And that was me being here in Singapore, which was going back to, yeah, why would I, like, I do nothing about VC. I had a very minimal network here in Asia. Um, you know, why would I start a new company, let alone a VC firm? And so to me, that's the same part. It's, it just reinforced the lesson of leaving IBM that if you just put yourself in uh, in a situation that you see something positive that could be an outcome, you'll figure it out as you go along. Um, I see it as kind of a way of creating the conditions for luck to happen. We had uh, one of the Cards Against Humanity co-founders on Max Max Temkin. He was talking about how his, his grandpa would always say, well, everybody gets lucky every once in a while, but you've got to be like smart when you're lucky. And I think that when you put yourself in those situations, you create the conditions for serendipity to happen, for sort of lucky things to happen that you can then seize upon. So which like in the case of Cards Against Humanity, they they created this game that everybody loved playing and then they seized the opportunity. In the case in your case, you uh were traveling and you saw this opportunity, you know, you were, there was a lot of some luck involved in that, but you were smart enough um and gutsy enough to take the uh the steps to take advantage of it and um uh, you, you mentioned if I could just go ahead throw in one quote so i just brought it up there's a really interesting guy his name is matthew marchery um and i read a piece by him and he described life as you can either do it two ways it's either there is a pond a lake and everybody's trying to swim across the lake and whoever gets there first is kind of the winner or his view of life is there's a raging river and whoever gets across the side is the winner. But in the Raging River scenario, you don't have to be the fastest. Your only instinct is to survive. Uh, and having the instinct to survive will naturally get you across the river. Um, and so I, that always stood out to me. So yeah, if you put, and I think that's and that's awesome what the guy about Cards Against Humanity is saying, I think you put yourself in those situations where more primal uh, things need to kick in and or, Everything you do is, is you need to survive. Again, your back is against the wall. I think you will be more successful. And it's interesting that when you were mentioning um, Paul being a sort of a catalyst for you, he was definitely a catalyst for me, as as were you. Because when I met you, uh, you were working at Metro, which just by the way, for people who don't know, it was well, I'm sure almost nobody knows. It was like the first. It was like a location based instant messaging service. And you you said you had six six guys living and working in a three bedroom apartment. But I think when I met you, it was like 12 and yeah, we, we. <laughs> Paul wasn't paying, wasn't paying a salary. It was all, it was all equity, but he also, but pay, all the food was paid for all the, you know, beer was paid for or something. It was like a, like a little frat house or something. And the energy there was, was awesome. Like the, the vitro logo was painted on the, on the fireplace mantle and everything. It was just, uh, so exciting to me coming from Nebraska and, and seeing that for the first time. So that was, uh, and you guys had a, um, what was it? That was the, uh, what was the thing that you took on beta breakers? The rickshaw. Oh, rickshaw. Oh my God. We don't have that anymore, but we had that for so many years. We had an actual rickshaw from India. That was, this is, a funny little, oh man, I love thinking of all these old stories. Um, there was an art gallery in Palo Alto that had this really famous Indian artist there who does paintings of rickshaws. And so as part of the exhibit, they actually imported a rickshaw from um, Calcutta or something like that. My 
friend who I probably met on Mitra or whatever, um, the art gallery needed to store the rickshaw somewhere for another exhibit, knew we had a garage. So we said we could start in the garage. She then left the art gallery and they kind of forgot where the rickshaw was being uh, stored. So we ended up owning this rickshaw. And we would take it around Palo Alto and we'd take it out at night. People would know us as who were those crazy rickshaw people. We'd pick people up from bars, take them to different places. We got pulled over by the cops twice because, um, yeah, rickshaws aren't supposed to be driving on the road uh, or being pulled on the road. And then we took it to events like Beta Breakers. And it was, it was a, a fun toy to have. I think I remember one time uh, you and I, we were with Megan. I don't know if we like went across. Did we give her a ride home? I don't remember what happened, but then... We uh, we ended up parking it in front of a bagel shop, like as it was opening, because we had we'd been up and out that late that it was the sun was coming up, and the bagel shop was opening, and so we just like parked it. Yeah, I remember that. Probably the bagel shops open at like five in the morning, <laughs> or they start making bagels at like five in the morning. Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess I'll start uh, wrapping things up here. Um, what's the biggest compromise that you've had to make to get where you are um biggest compromise mm. uh, so, so going back to you know everything i've been talking about so like when i was like shit southeast asia and singapore is where it's at um that as so maybe i haven't had to make a compromise but christine has that was not what she was thinking as okay this is the be all end all um, so it's definitely been a, uh, challenging family dynamic things of, uh, so I wouldn't, so I would say Christine's been making probably the larger compromise there. Okay. So <laughs> your compromise is your, your spouse not having what she wants. Yeah. Like, cause if you're used to a San Francisco lifestyle, uh, in terms of friends and people and everything you can do and places you can go, Singapore is very different. Um, and there's, there are other places in Asia that would have, uh, have experiences that would be just as unique or just as, uh, crazy. But, uh, you know, I would say here in Southeast Asia and Singapore, it, it doesn't have that feeling. Mm-hmm. And when have you left money on the table and what did you get in exchange? Um, I should could you elaborate on a question like that, like in oh, terms boy, of like okay. job so offer or no, I think there's, I think there's, there's times where somebody has an opportunity to make more money than they're making. Um, and so they pass up a particular opportunity in exchange for another opportunity. And there's, and there's, there's a different type of capital or there's a different type of, of value that's, that's, that's in that decision that's making up for, leaving the money on the table. So I would say between Mitro and Lafora, I had multiple offers uh, that um, took to leave and be pretty senior level at other companies, some young startups, some like large tech firms at cash that was well larger than anything I was making. So that is, you know, part of, I mean, at the end of the day, there's still a financial reason of like, Oh, well, you know, I'm, uh, uh, this is something I started. I have equity. I want this is my baby, uh, and I see a huge payout at the end. That's not why you're doing it, but I'm just saying that that if you want to say financially, you, you would play that in the back of your mind. But the reality is, the reason why I was making the choices where you know I love what I'm doing, who I'm doing it with, how we're approaching things, and I, I don't want to make the jump to a, a, another company. Yeah, and the fact that you had such a uh, 
tight-knit relationship with all the, the, the folks from Metro living in that house together was part of why you were able to raise money in, on your, in your next endeavor. Yeah. What's the last book that you read that changed the way you saw something? Um, <laughs> trying to think of the last few books I read are all fiction. So they haven't changed the way I saw something. They weren't like mind benders. No, I, I, so that's the thing is I used to read a lot of those. So like I, when all the Malcolm Gladwell's uh, novels would come out, I would digest them, Freakonomics, like all of those big books when they were coming out in like the early 2000s, like 2002 to 2006, I couldn't get enough of them. Um, but now I've, uh, whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, um, just have not digested those. sorts. So now it's more, if I'm going to read, I'd rather do it for less, for more for pleasure. And like, I want to read a book that is, gives me a good, uh, laugh or gives cool, me, I'm interested then what's, uh, I've started to read a little bit more fiction than usual. So is there anything that you've enjoyed? Yes. Let me, you don't uh, <laughs> I can't think of it. It's like the girl who changed the king, uh, king of Sweden. I think it's the girl who saved the king of Sweden. He's an amazing author that writes actual real narrative history and politics. Uh, the girl who saved the king of Sweden. Okay. That that was a fantastic book to read, David. I think you would like it, and it, and it makes in like real history, historic events, and politics with a very fictional uh, character. So you can learn while you're being enter entertained. Yes. Um, do you make your bed? <laughs> uh, Christine wishes I did. Um, so no. <laughs> And so, so, yeah, we have, uh, fortunately, this is one of the, the really nice things of uh, living in Singapore. We have something that helps us uh, with Rocco, a little baby. We have a second one coming. And then it helps with all the household chores, which is life transforming. Yeah. And do you have a final message for our listeners that kind of summarizes but, but what we've talked Christine about? Christine does make me make the bed sometimes. Christine does oh, okay. make me make the bed <laughs> But you're not somebody who's like, well, I make sure I make the bed every day because that's how I keep myself start the day with a win and keep myself successful. Uh, no, my, my thing for to start the day is do not look at email. Uh, your brain is strongest in the morning and don't waste it on somebody else's questions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely, I don't look at the email till maybe noon or something. And, and it's part because my brain does good work in the morning, but it's also my brain is very vulnerable in the morning. Meaning that if I start looking at the email, then I'll just be looking at email. It's over. Yep. And so do you have a final message to kind of summarize uh, our lessons today? Uh, I mean, uh, I would just say, yeah, what we talked about and things that I've always gone on. Well, here, uh, I'll finalize it with what my dad always said to me, and it never resonated until I was older. You can do whatever you put your mind to. I, I feel like I've heard that one before, Vidi. <laughs> okay. no, I don't think my dad invented it, but he would say it to me. I want to say like on a on an every other week basis, like no matter what I was doing, he would just always, always say it to me. Uh, so it was just like driven into my head and it's the, uh, he, he repeated it so, so frequently that uh, it has had a profound effect on the way I view the world. It kind of reminds me of when I was doing the insanity fitness program and Sean T I'm familiar with it, but Sean T the whole time is like, you can do it. 
And I'm like, man, that's really cheesy. But then eventually you're like, yeah, he's right. I can do it. So it just got programmed in your brain and now you, now you believe it. Yes, it was programmed. Exactly. It was the repetition. It was from some, it was from my dad. It wasn't, you know, me hearing on TV. It wasn't, and it, it was the repetition of just hearing it all the time and hearing it at the right time. That's why it was something that just was rattling around in the back of the head and then didn't ever even consciously thought about it until I was much older. I was like, wait a minute. I always, my dad always used to say that to me. So I think we have a lot of like really wise observations from today. And I think that you'll probably, you know, you're not somebody who's typically out on social media a lot, even though you're meeting a lot of people, but I think you're probably, you're probably going to get some new fans. So if they want, if they want some more, uh, some more Vinny Laria, where do they, uh, where do they go? Uh, so uh, Twitter would be V Loria, L-A-U-R-I-A. Uh, happy to answer any questions or comments that people want there. Um, and then that's probably the most easiest social way to interact with me. Great. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Vinny. Uh, David, thank you. This was fun. Love Your Work is supported in part by Treehouse. Take your career to the next level and learn from over 1,000 videos created by expert teachers on web design, coding, business, and much more. Claim your free 14-day free trial at academy.net slash treehouse. You'll be supporting the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vinny Lauria of... Golden Gate Ventures. To hear more about accidentally finding your career while traveling, check out episode 23 with Jody Edinburgh. She quit her job as a lawyer to travel, and now she's an independent food and travel writer. And if you appreciate all the work that goes into making this show, there are a couple of ways you can help support it. One is to subscribe, 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 subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just hit the subscribe button. Another is to rate the show on iTunes. Just go to cadavy.net slash iTunes and click on write a review and click on the star rating. You don't even have to write a review. It just takes a couple of seconds. And do you like books? If you do, I'd love to send you my book recommendations. About 90% of them will be nonfiction on subjects spanning from biographies to neuroscience. Just go to cadavy.net slash reading, sign up, and you'll get my first set of recommendations right away. You'll be supporting the show if you buy any of those books through the links in the email. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for the show is More Streets, performed by Spider Flower. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>